Oh, here we go. <laughs> How many of y'all were here last year? A few of y'all? So y'all remember who I am? Kind of, sort of, not really. My name is Joe Matheson. I live around Alton Rowena. Some of y'all might know where that's at. Uh, I'm a farmer, but that's, you know, just kind of, well, I farm, I have a custom spraying business, and then also run my grandfather's chemical business. So I tell people that I have a career, a job, and a part-time job, but I couldn't tell you which one's which. So just pick one. That is what I do, but what I am is the father of five. Man, that thing is touchy. There we go. As the father of five, I got three beautiful girls, two of them are here tonight, and three insanely crazy boys. On top of that, I'm also the farmer and editor on Rome Boys. Have any of y'all ever seen one of our videos before? Y'all have? Cool. Thank y'all for watching. So that is kind of who I am, but I would also describe myself as a disciple, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But tonight, I've got some questions for y'all. We're going to do a little interaction here. So, first of all, what is the one thing that happened in Jesus' life that if it didn't happen, we wouldn't be here tonight? Not that we wouldn't exist, but I mean that we wouldn't be Christians. We wouldn't be Catholics. What's the one thing that happened in his life that if it didn't happen, it wouldn't be here? The passion. The crucifixion. You're close. You're close. Any other guesses? The resurrection. The resurrection. Very good. See, because without the resurrection, the crucifixion is just another execution. Right? I mean, the Romans killed people all the time. It wasn't a big deal. They killed people left and right. So if it wasn't for the resurrection, the crucifixion is just another execution. Because we've got to remember, Jesus is claiming to be God, right? We know he's claiming to be God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he says, Truly, truly, when, as Abraham was, before Abraham was, I am. Y'all remember that? I am is the name that Moses got from God. God gave, he said, he's supposed to go to the Israelites and bring them out of Egypt. He says, who am I supposed to tell them sent me? I am. I am who, is, who am. So, Jesus is claiming to be God by saying, before Abraham was, I am. And his believers, the, the people who were listening to him, we know that they knew he was claiming to be God because the next verse says they were picking up rocks, they were ready to stone him because that was blasphemous. You didn't call yourself God. You didn't even say the name of God in the Jewish tradition. It was Yahweh. You didn't say that. It was blasphemy. It was punishable by death. So Jesus is obviously claiming to be God. So let's say he is tortured, he's crucified, he's put in a tomb for three days with no food, water, or medical attention, and he gets up and he walks out. Makes a pretty good case that he is God, right? I mean, I would believe that he was God if he did that. But why do we believe that? Why do we believe that Jesus just 2,000 years ago got up and walked out of the tomb? I mean, we know from our own human experience, we've all lost loved ones, right? We've all lost loved ones. I lost my grandpa back in January. I know he's not coming back. So why do we just willy-nilly believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus got up and walked out? Who told us? Any guesses? The apostles, right? The apostles. And we read that in the Bible, right? The apostles witness. They claim that he came back to life. Because you have really, when it comes to the resurrection, let's think about this. You have two choices. The tomb is, he's either in the tomb or he's not. He's either in there or it's empty. Right? So why do we know, how do we know that it was empty? The Jews went through a lot of trouble to have Jesus killed, right? They went through a lot of trouble. We just got through with Lent. We heard all about it. They went through a lot of trouble to have him killed. So what's the easiest way whenever they start walking around saying, oh, Jesus is risen, we've seen him alive. What's the easiest way to shut him down? 
What's the easiest thing the Jews could have done to shut them up? Show them the body, right? Produce the body. Let's go to the tomb. Let's roll the rock away. Whoa! He is still in there. We're good. Y'all can go home now. But that didn't happen because the tomb was empty. So if the tomb is empty, we have to ask the very obvious next question, which is what? What happened to the body? What happened to the body? What's the most logical explanation on what happened to the body? Anybody got a guess? Somebody stole the body. Who stole it? The apostles, right? Because Jesus was famous. He was famous. So all they had to do was just walk, go from town to town, you know, just preach a little bit about what Jesus taught, say that he was alive. We saw him alive. They could go to any town they wanted to and get a free meal. They could get a free place to stay and just live off his fame for the rest of his life. So how do we trust them? How can we trust these guys when they say, yeah, we saw him, he's alive? How did they die? Does anybody know? Lots of different ways. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy enough to be crucified like Jesus. His brother Andrew was crucified in the shape of an X. That's why if you if y'all are golfers in here, you know the St. Andrew's course in was it Scotland? It's their crest is two golf clubs in the shape of an X for St. Andrew. Because it's St. Andrew's golf course. Let's see, James was beheaded. There's a few of them stoned to death. Forget what. Yeah, there was one that was impaled by a spear. I think one of them was drugged to death. Any Yeah. Any deer hunters in here? I know you I know there's deer hunters in here, right? Any of y'all seen a deer skinned? Yeah. St. Bartholomew was skinned alive. He was skinned alive. And every one of them, as they were being killed, as they were being martyred, proclaimed Jesus to be risen, that he was alive, that they saw him. Nobody dies for what they know is a lie. I mean, there's lots of people that die for lies. First thing that pops in my head is people who fly planes in the buildings. There's lots of people who die for lies, but no one dies for what they know is a lie. So you have to know, you have to understand that as soon as that nail starts piercing the hand, as soon as the rocks start flying, as soon as that knife starts to cut away at the skin and they start peeling it back until you're dead, if there's just a little bit of doubt, just a little bit, maybe we had too much wine, you know, maybe we had some bad mushrooms, had some, maybe we hallucinating, maybe we saw a ghost. If there was just a little bit of doubt, they'd have been talking. They'd have squealed. They'd have said, no, sorry, it's just jokes, boys. It's just jokes. He's buried in Peter's backyard. We'll go show you. Stop, stop hurting me. But that didn't happen. Every one of them went to their death proclaiming Jesus to be alive. To me, there's more evidence in their witness that Jesus rose from the dead than, than Biden winning the last election. Honestly, really. <clears throat> because, I mean, think about it. These guys were cowards, right? These apostles were cowards. What did they do when Jesus was arrested? They hid. They ran. And then all of a sudden, they have this superhuman uh, bravery, this courage that... I'm going to die for this. I'm going to die for this. No one dies for what they know is a lie. So we can trust their witness because they died for it. So where do we hear this witness? In the Gospels, in the Scriptures, right? We, we read it in the Bible. Why do we trust the Bible? Right? I mean, what is the Bible? Or maybe the proper question is, where did it come from? You know, these are all questions that we should be pondering. I got an analogy for you. Let's think. I love analogies. If y'all ever watch the show, I love to do analogies. Let's say that there are these archaeologists digging around in the Holy Lands. That's not too far-fetched, because there's always archaeologists digging around somewhere, right? And they're digging in the Holy Lands, and they find this cave. Okay? And inside this cave, they find scrolls. And in these scrolls, you know, they're perfectly preserved. It's got to be a miracle, right? And they read it and they get all these literary scholars and Bible scholars and history scholars and all these smart people. And they determine that these scrolls are the letters of St. Paul to some unknown church. doesn't exist anymore. Should these letters be added to the Bible? 
What says you? Yes? Okay. Who has the authority to add them? Or what if the answer is no? No, the canon is closed. We can't add anything to the Bible. Who closed it? You see, the point is, is that there has to be an authority outside of the Bible to tell us what belongs in the Bible. Right? Because, I mean, we all believe that the Bible is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, that God and the Holy Spirit inspired these writers to write this stuff down so that they can pass it, pass it on to us. We all believe this. But nowhere in the Bible does it say what belongs in the Bible. There's no inspired list, right? So somebody had to, and there was a lot of books being written back then. Tons of, tons of books. I mean, there was the uh, Didache. There was the uh, uh, Gospel of Thomas. There was the Gospel of Judas. Uh, the Apocrypha of Peter. The Apocrypha of Paul. I mean, there was just lots of books being written back then. And a lot of them were being read at Mass. So someone had to determine what was inspired and what wasn't. I mean, we just claimed, you know, that Jesus, that God inspired men to write this stuff down, right? So wouldn't it make sense that God also inspired other men to put it together? Makes sense to me. I mean, what would be easier to do? I think it would be easier to put them together than it would be to write them all out. So for the first list of the table of contents, we don't actually see until the year 367. That's the first list of the table of the 27 books of the New Testament. It didn't show up until the year 367, some 330 years after Jesus died. So for the first 300 years, how did the Christians know how to live? How did they know how to be Christians? The list wasn't official until the Council of Hippo in 393 and then the Council of Carthage in 397. In 1 Timothy 3.15 it says, If I am delayed, Paul is talking to Timothy, he says, If I am delayed, you shall know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the bulwark of the truth, or pillar and foundation of the church, of the truth. Excuse me. What does a pillar do? Holds things up. What does a, I had to look this up, what is a bulwark? What is a bulwark? A bulwark is one of those walls around a castle. You know, you see it in these old movies where the archer is walking around. In other words, it was a protection, right? It was to protect what was inside. So the church, if Paul is telling Timothy here, is that the church is the protector, the pillar, the one that holds up the truth and protects the truth. But which church? The only church, the only Christian church in existence at that time who had the authority to hold councils, who had the authority to put these books together, was the Catholic Church. I want you all to remember this. If you all don't get anything out of tonight, I want you to remember this. The Bible is a Catholic book. The Catholic Church gave it to the world. It is our book. Say it with me. The Bible is a Catholic book. If the church has no authority, then the Bible has no authority. So we believe in the Bible because of the witness and the authority of the Catholic church. So brings up the next question. Why do we believe in the Catholic church? Where did it come from? Let's look at some scripture. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 through 19, Maybe all, some of y'all are familiar with this one. Jesus just asked his apostles, who do, the, who do the people say I am? They say, ah, John the Baptist, maybe Elijah come back, reincarnated, something like that. Then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And who says first? Peter. Peter's always the one that speaks up first. And he's usually the one that always puts his foot in his mouth. That's why I like him so much. He says, you are the son of God. We have come to believe that you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. He said, and Jesus tells him what? Blessed are you, Simon. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose, you'll be loosed in heaven. But he also says, he changes his name. He says, blessed are you, Simon. For now you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Your name is Peter, and on this rock? 
Peter in Aramaic is the name is Kepha. So it would sound in Aramaic, that's what Jesus spoke. It would sound like this. It would say, you are now Kepha, and on this Kepha I will build my church. So you are rock. Peter means rock. You are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And then in Matthew chapter 18, 18, he's talking to all the apostles. And he says the same thing. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So in other words, whatever you decide here is decided up there. Whatever you loose, whatever you reject here is rejected up there. That's a lot of authority, right? That's a pretty heavy weight there. He says in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me and rejects the one who sent me. Who sent God? Who sent Jesus? Gave you the answer. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is telling the, the apostles, He said, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's been given to Him. Given to Jesus. And then in John 20, 21, He says, He's talking to the apostles now. So, He goes, As the Father has sent me, how did the Father send Jesus? With all the authority of heaven and earth. He says, As the Father has sent me, now I send you guys. You guys are going to go out and do my work. The Catholic Church is the only one that has God's authority. And it was handed on through the apostles. But Peter is the only one he gave the keys to. If you go back to Matthew 16, we just talked about it. He's the only one that gives the keys. Why are the keys so important? Well, now we've got to go back to the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah 22, there's this long story about a head steward. Okay, you all know what a steward is? He's like second in command. He's the first mate, you know. The Lord is the Lord of the land, right? He's the king of everything. But the first in command, or the second in command, I should say, the head steward, he has as much power as the king does. But he's not the king. But in this story, the, steward, the head steward has the keys. Okay? And he ain't doing a very good job. And so the king is taking these keys and he's going to give it to somebody else. This is where we get the office of the pope. Okay? The Pope has the keys. Peter was our first Pope. Actually, I have here... <clears throat> I don't even know if I'm staying on this thing or not. <laughs> on my list. But here is a poster of all of our Popes in an unbroken line, starting from Peter all the way to Pope Francis. 266 or 67 Popes in an unbroken line. Just like we can trace our current president all the way back to George Washington, we can do so even better with Peter and the apostles in an unbroken line. Y'all can come look at that later. We also see in Isaiah 22, I was talking about how you, the guy wasn't doing a very good job, right? And he handed, they were taking the keys away from him and he was giving them to somebody else. This is where we see that it's an office. That the Pope is a, it's a, it's an office. It's a place that tells, it's a position. Okay? And we see it again in Acts chapter 1. The first thing Peter does as Pope, after Jesus ascends into heaven, he says, Judas was numbered among us. We need to replace him. His household is empty, but his office we need to replace. He needs to be replaced. And what do they do? They draw straws or cast lots, however they did it back then, and it fell on Matthias. And Matthias became one of the twelve. So we see this handing on of the popes, of the, of the position. We actually see the second, let's see here. We actually see the second pope and the fourth pope in Scripture. So St. Linus, he is found in 2 Timothy. Uh, see, Clement is actually mentioned in Philippians. Kind of neat, little, you know. Not, I wouldn't call it useless knowledge, but. But when did the church? Let's go. Let's step away out of scripture for a little bit, and let's say, when did the church actually start calling itself Catholic? Because I mean, back in that day, it was called the Way. The Christians, the early Christians, they said it was called. They said we follow the Way. So when did it become the Catholic Church? We see. There's this uh, early church fathers. You ever heard of the early church fathers? One of them was St. Ignatius of Antioch. St. Ignatius, he was a disciple of the apostle John. So he learned everything he knew about the faith from the apostle John. Right? And it's actually said that he was ordained a bishop 
by Peter himself. So St. Ignatius should know what he's talking about, right? And here he talks about, uh, I lost my place. He says, and he wrote this around 80 to 110, 106, it depends, not real sure. But it says, wherever the bishops shall appear, let there, let the people also be. Even as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. This is the first written evidence we have of the church calling itself Catholic. He also says, uh, I believe this is the same letter. He says, see that you all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ does the Father, and the priesthood as you would the apostles, and reverence for the deacons, as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Here he's giving us our hierarchy. He's talking about the bishops. He's talking about the priests. He's talking about the deacons. He's listing it all out there, just as we have it today in the Catholic Church. So we believe in the Bible because of the witness and the authority of the Catholic Church. I had a buddy of mine, whenever I first kind of got real fired up about the faith and I started learning a lot of this stuff, I'm still learning. But I, has, I just got on this mission that everybody needed to become Catholic. And I picked on a lot of my Protestant friends. Some of them still talk to me. But I had one in particular guy I was messaging him back and forth on you know, Facebook or texting or whatever it was at the time. And uh, he said, you're trying to tell me that the early Christians were Catholics? I said, yes, sir. He said, you're trying to tell me the apostle Paul was a Catholic? I said, yes, sir. He said, ah, oh, you're going to have to prove that to me. I said, game on. How are we going to do it? And I came up with an idea. Because that's what I do. I said, all right, let's pick a doctrine. Let's pick something we don't agree on. Right? Let's pick something we don't agree on. And let's read some of these early church fathers. Let's read some of these early Christians. And see. And then even, let's even look at the Bible. And let's see what it looks like. Does it look like your church? Does it look like my church? Does it look like your non-denominational Protestant church? Or does it look like the Catholic church? And so I thought, <clears throat> I'm going straight for the kill. The Eucharist. They believe that it's just a symbol. That you do it because Jesus said to do it. You know, do this in remembrance of me, right? We, as Catholics, believe that it is the body, blood, soul, and divinity, the real presence of Jesus in the, blood, in the body and the blood, right? In the bread and the wine, it is truly Jesus. So I said, all right, let's look at some early church fathers Let's look at the Bible. Let's see who it represents the most. But back up just a little bit. When it comes to the Eucharist, just like the tomb, you have two choices. It either is him or it's just a cracker. Right? It either is Jesus or it's not. And let me tell you, if it's not really Jesus, then we need to run. We need to run from this building as fast as we can because that is the biggest form of idolatry possible. We are all in risk of going to hell if that is just a cracker. But if it is truly Jesus, then we need to live our lives in a way that says, I believe that. You know, when you come up to communion, every time you say, and he's the priest says, body of Christ, and you say, amen, you know what that means? Amen means I believe. But it's more than that. It means I believe it, I believe this enough to die for it. Amen. I believe it. But first, let's, let's go to scripture now. What does Jesus say? The go-to verses or the go-to book to go to for Jesus talking about the Eucharist is John chapter 6. Okay? John chapter 6, and it goes. Uh, he has many verses in there, but one in particular I picked out was verse 51. And it says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to eat his flesh and drink his blood seven times. Seven different times he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then he also says, if you eat this bread, he will raise you up on the last day. If you don't, you have no life in you. 
If you eat his bread, his blood, if you eat his body and drink his blood, you will, he will remain in you and you will remain in him. You will live forever. Sounds like he means what he says, right? That the bread is not just a symbol. What did his audience think? Okay, this you got to put this in uh, got to put this in context here. Okay, he is saying this right about the time, right after he fed the five thousand with two loaves and two fish. Right, five thousand men is what the scripture says. And there they said in verse sixty said this is a hard saying. How does anybody? How can anybody believe this? We're supposed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. We don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. And then at sixty six it said that they all left. They walked away, 5,000 men. There's scholars today that says they didn't count the women. They didn't count the children. So there's some who believe that over 15,000 people walked away from Jesus over this one saying, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Sounds to me like they believed exactly what he said. But wait, in the next verse, Jesus says, hang on a second, I'm not finished. He didn't do that, did he? No, he didn't do that. What did he do in the next verse? He looked at the, the apostles and he said, you guys two going to leave? And it's Peter again. Peter pops up and he says, Lord, we've come to believe. We understand exactly what you mean. We know exactly what you're saying. We're here with you. We got you back. That's not what he said. He said, we've come to believe that you are the Christ. Where else are we going to go? To whom else are we going to follow? He didn't say, I get it. He didn't say, I understand. Oh, yeah, I get it. No problem. No. He didn't. He, just, he was sitting there going, I hope you're going to explain this later. But right now, we're just going to follow you because we believe you're God. That's good enough. Let's look at the Last Supper. In all the Last Supper accounts, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. I have a buddy of mine who converted a couple years back now. And he says, you know, it's hard to argue with the word is. It really is hard to argue with that word. So this is what Jesus said. Let's look a little bit further. What about Paul? Was Paul a Catholic? Did he believe in the real presence? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 29, through 29, Paul is recounting the Last Supper. Okay? He wasn't there. He wasn't there, so he had to hear it from either the apostles or he had to learn it from Jesus himself through visions or whatever it might be. So Paul is telling people in Corinth, in Corinth that about the Last Supper, and he gets to verse 27, he says, if you receive the body in an unworthy manner, okay, if you receive it in an unworthy manner, you are guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Some translations or some people have come, scholars have learned to say that, you know, this profaning means you're guilty of his death. And then in verse 29 it says, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. In other words, you ain't been to confession yet. You haven't cleaned up some of them sins that you've been committing. If anyone who discern, without discerning the body eats and drinks, judgment upon himself. Let me ask you a question. How can you be guilty of his death how can you be guilty of drinking and eating judgment upon yourself if it's just a cracker? Right? If it's just a cracker. Let me put it to you this way. I got another analogy for you. Let's say I have a cardboard cutout of a politician. I ain't going to say which one. Let's just say I have this cardboard cutout of a politician. And I set it up in my backyard and I shoot it full of holes. I'm using it as target practice, right? Pow, 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 pow. I even get some tannerite and I blow it up, okay? Am I guilty of this guy's death? No. It's just a cardboard cutout. It's just a symbol of that guy. I wouldn't recommend this just in case the federalities might be listening and they might come after us. So don't, I wouldn't recommend doing this, okay? Just put that disclaimer out there. But if I were to do that, I am not guilty of that man's death because that is just a symbol. So what Paul is saying here is that if I receive Jesus in the Eucharist in an unworthy manner, I'm guilty of his death. How is that possible if it's just a cracker? Sounds to me like Paul believes in the real presence. 
Who remembers the story in Luke? I think it's 24, chapter 24, where it's the road to Emmaus, where the two followers right after Jesus died, and they're walking on the road to Emmaus. Y'all remember that story? You know, they're sitting there discussing what had happened in Jerusalem. What happened? This is Easter Sunday, and they're walking to Emmaus. And they're talking about it, and Jesus comes up to them. But they don't know it's Jesus. They can't see that it's Jesus. And he starts saying, hey, what's going on? What are y'all talking about? And they're like, where have you been? You've been living under a rock? You've not heard what's going on in Jerusalem, what they did to Jesus? Uh, no, tell me. And so they explain to Jesus what happened to Jesus. And he goes, then all of a sudden Jesus turns it on him and he says, wait a second. And he starts opening up the scriptures. The only scripture they had back then was the Old Testament. And he starts revealing to them in the Old Testament how he had to die so that they could all be saved. And then they get to Emmaus and they, he's about, they, it makes, he makes them think that he's about to walk on and go on. And they're like, no, 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 stay with us. Stay with us. Hey, you know, have a meal with us. Stay the night with us. He said, okay. So he stays with them. And he sits down. And he has, they sit down to eat. He takes the bread. He says the blessing and he breaks it. And then all of a sudden their eyes are open and they can see it's Jesus. They see him in the breaking of the bread. Did you know that in our Mass, every day, every Sunday, there are two parts to the Mass. There's the liturgy of the Word, and there's the liturgy of the Eucharist. Right after Father gets through with his homily, from the beginning to that point is the liturgy of the Word. After that is the liturgy of the Eucharist. That's here in Luke 24. Did y'all see that? As they're walking down the road, and they even say, weren't our hearts burning inside us as he was opening the Scriptures to us? As they were walking and he was talking, that was the liturgy of the word. And then when they sat down and they were breaking bread and their eyes were opened and they saw him in the breaking of the bread, it's the liturgy of the Eucharist. We have the Mass in Scripture. Kind of cool, huh? But let's look at some early church fathers. What did they believe? So we kind of determined that Jesus meant what he said and said what he meant. And we've said that Paul kind of believes in the real presence. What about the early church fathers? I got a couple of sheets I printed out. This is, this is about three sheets of 11 of some early church father quotes on the Eucharist. I just picked out my favorites. St. Ignatius again. We talked about him earlier. He wrote this between somewhere in 80 and to 100. He said, I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. And for drink, I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. He said that in the letter to the Romans. In the letter to the Philippians, no, Philadelphians, excuse me. He said, take care to use one Eucharist so that whatever you do, you do according to God. For there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup in the union of his blood. One altar, as there is one bishop and one priest. Then in the letter to the Sumerians, I think that's how you say it. He's talking about, well, it says Gnostics or heretics. He said, the heretics abstain from the Eucharist, from the prayer, because they do not confess the Eucharist is, there's that word again, is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his goodness raised up again. Justin Martyr, he lived from like 100 to 165. He wrote, the food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him, Jesus, is both the flesh and the blood of the incarnated Jesus. Okay. I just got one more guy. Here's, I'm just, I know I'm rambling on. These may be getting kind of boring. But St. Augustine, he's, he's our Protestant brothers and sisters favorite most of the time. He, he lived between 354 and 430, and he talked about a rough dude. He had a wild story growing up as pretty much a pagan and not believing in anything to becoming one of our greatest saints. He said, The bread which you see on the altar, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the body of Christ. The chalice is the blood of Christ. Through that bread, exactly, through that bread and wine, the Lord Christ willed to command his body and blood, which he poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. He said that in one of his sermons. And there's a couple more. 
I'll just skip down to the last one because I think the last one's really good. He said, For we received, he received, Jesus, he received earth from earth because flesh is from the earth. He took the flesh from the flesh of Mary. Makes sense. He walked here in the same flesh and gave us the same flesh to be eaten unto salvation. But no one eats that flesh unless first he adores it. And not only do we not sin by adoring, we do not sin, or we do sin by not adoring. I don't know about you, but it seems like these early church fathers, these early church Christians, believed in the real presence. So a lot of a big question we get asked a lot is why are so many people leaving the church? Why are so many Catholics just so willy-nilly easy leaving the church? In my opinion, it's because they don't know, they don't believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. That's my opinion. You can stone me later. But the last statistic I read or have heard about was that 70% of adult Catholics do not believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. If you lined up 100 people along this wall or along these walls, only 30 of them actually believe. For you guys, for you teenagers, 80. 80% 80 do not believe in the real presence. So if you lined up 100 of you guys in this room, only 20 of you actually believe. I'm not immune to this. I actually left the church for two years. Back, you know, this was several years ago. Yeah, we were having some problems within the, in the family. And we just thought, let's just get away. Let's distance ourselves and let's just get away from it for a while. So we went to the Baptist church right down the road. Like I said, for two years. And in the Baptist tradition, they don't have the Eucharist. Because they believe it's just a symbol, right? We discussed that with my buddy. They believe it to be just... We do this because Jesus said to. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. We do it just... And so they do it like once a quarter or once a month. And I remember the first time, they have this little tray. has a bunch of little holes in it. And it has little, those little paper cups, you know. And they pass it on down the aisle and it has your little cracker. So you take your little crash cracker and then here comes another tray with a little paper gla shot glass with the grape juice in it. So you take your cracker, you take your shot, and then you're good. That's their Lord's Supper. I remember taking it for the first taking it. That's an interesting frame of work. I remember receiving it for the first time and just feeling empty. Does that make sense? I just felt, it felt silly. For lack of better words, it just felt silly. And over time, the next time it came around, I might have received, I don't remember, but at one point, I finally was just like, mm, no, it's okay. No, it's okay. I was coming to realize that if it's just a cracker, what's the point? Honestly, what's the point? I'm actually grateful for that experience. I'm grateful for leaving because it's made me have more, I was able to grow in appreciation for what we have here in the Catholic Church and really an appreciation and love for the Eucharist. So I can't ever leave the church ever again because that means I would be leaving Jesus. I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm like Peter. I don't get it, but I know who you are. Who else can I go to? Right? Okay. So let's try to wrap this up. I know y'all are getting tired. It's been a long day. But let's talk, let's kind of review what we've been over so far. So we've determined through logic, common sense, right? Through some history and some scripture that Jesus wasn't in the tomb, right? Y'all agree with that? Jesus wasn't in the tomb. He wasn't in there. Okay? We've determined that he rose from the dead because of the witness of the apostles, right? Y'all agree with that? Sure, I hope so. We believe and we read about their witness in the Bible, and so we believe in the Bible because of the witness and the authority of the Catholic Church. By history, Scripture... We believe in the authority of the Catholic Church that was founded by Jesus 2,000 years ago and handed down. We call this apostolic succession. It means it started with the apostles and then they passed it on to the next, to the bishop. 
Can y'all tell me what the difference between an apostle and a bishop is? Anybody know? It's the same office, right? An apostle was personally sent by Jesus. And a bishop is his successor. So in other words, Peter, James, John, even Paul, they were all apostles because Jesus personally said, you go out and you make disciples of all nations. And so whenever they died or were crucified or martyred, they were like, before, I'm gonna lay, they did it by the laying on of hands. I'm going to give you my authority. Okay? So we have determined, and I hopefully we believe, in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist through Scripture and history and the witness and the authority of the Catholic Church and the example of the early church fathers. So I have one last question for you. Y'all ready? What are you going to do about it? Think about it. When you come to, come to this point that you have to accept it or deny it, what are you going to do about it? Because it demands a response. You have to do something with this. In Matthew chapter 28, 19 through 20, we talked, maybe talked about that earlier, is that this was the Great Commission. You go out and you make disciples of all nations. Right? So if we come to believe this and understand it as best as our human minds can, we have to do something with it. We have to live our lives in a way that says, I don't only believe this, but I prove it in how I live. Do we believe this? I believe. I don't always understand. I don't always get it. I mean, why bread and wine? Why not beer and a steak? It makes sense to me. I mean, why not? That would be pretty good. A great prayer to say, and I say this a lot as I'm walking down the aisle coming to communion, is you find it in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. He says, I do believe Help my unbelief. So what's the point in all this? What am I trying to get across here? You see, let's just be honest. Let's just be real here. Why are you guys here tonight? Let's be honest. Why are y'all here? So mom and daddy asked you to. Mom and daddy told you. Come on, you can be honest with me. I know. Mom and daddy said so. Right? That's how I, was, that's how I grew up. I went to church on Sunday because mom and daddy said so. I went to CCD on Wednesday nights because mom and daddy said so. I went to youth group because the girls were cute. <laughs> and mom and daddy said so. <clears throat> That's what I meant. Sorry. The point in all this is soon it's not going to be mom and daddy telling you no more. Pretty soon y'all are getting close and some of you guys are almost there that y'all are going to be going off to college. And it's not going to be mom and daddy saying, hey, you guys need to go to church. You guys are going to have the choices. Here we go with two choices again. You either have the opportunity to grow your faith or just let it go. To either grow it or not. It's up to you. So we need to be asking these questions. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we believe in Mary? Why do we, you know, why do we pray to the saints? Why do we go to confession? Why do we have to get confirmed? Why, 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 why? I saw a funny one. You know, this is May the 4th. May the fourth be with you. I saw a funny one that said that, uh, you know, the reason Yoda died, uh, he was tired of Luke asking all those questions. <laughs> he just finally faded away. But we need to be asking these questions. Why? Because faith grows by asking questions. The why is what makes it your faith. It's what makes it our faith, is asking why. But you got to put in the work and find the answers because I guarantee you they're there. You just have to do the work. You have to find those answers. So let me ask you. Is your faith part of your everyday life? Is your faith part of your college choice? Some of you are getting ready to go. I'm sure some of you have already been to college campuses. Did you go to the church that you probably would be attending? Good job. Good for you. Did you, and a lot of these, like College Station and ASU, and I think even maybe even... Lubbock has a Newman Center. Y'all are aware of the Newman Center? Y'all know what the Newman Center is? This is a center that is just for Catholics. Well, it's for everybody. Everybody's welcome to come. But this is where Catholics get together, college Catholics, to be together and to grow in their faith. Is your faith part of your friends? Rome boys. 
We're a men's group. That's it. We're three guys who get together and talk about the faith. We just happen to have a camera. And some silly guy puts it on YouTube. That's all we are. We say a lot on the show that you are the five people you hang around with the most. You act like the five people you hang around with the most. That's why I'm childish. I have five kids. They're going to keep me young. Sort of. But anyway. So are you hanging around with a group that builds you up in the faith? Or are you hanging around with those that tear you down? When you go pick out your college, or when you're in your group at school, pick out the group. Go to the Newman Centers. Find you some good friends that help build you up in the faith. Why are we so afraid to say the name Jesus? Just when you hear that word, doesn't it make you just a little uncomfortable? Jesus. It gives me chills. Why? Because there's power in that name. Is your faith part of your dating? That's right, I said it. I said this story last year, and i got to repeat it because I just love it so much. One of my cousins, who uh, she just got married a year ago, and they're actually expecting their first child now. Before her and her husband would go out on a date, while they were dating, before they were married, they would go to adoration first. It blew my mind when I first heard this. He did what? Never even occurred to me to do that. It's like, dude, this guy's a rock star. How, that just was amazing to me. I'm not giving you guys a pickup line, okay? But he, they would go to adoration before they would go out on their date. Girls, can you imagine this? Think about this. Imagine you're in college or you're out of college and, you're, and your man asks you to go out on a date or asks to go to the movies. And I say man because a boy plays with toys, okay? And a boy will treat you as a toy. A man wants you, all of you, your heart, your mind. He wants it all, okay? So find a man, all right? So what if your man came to you and said, hey, babe, before we go out to the movies tonight, can we stop off at the church and spend some time with Jesus? You would know that this guy puts God first in his life. And if he puts God first in his life, guess where that puts you? Second. Second to God. It's a pretty good company, right? And if he puts, if you're second to God, He's going to treat you like a princess because that is who you are. Every woman in this room is a daughter of the living God. You are a princess. You should be treated as such. Do not settle for anything less. Fellas, you're always going to have toys. I'm sorry. Just as the older you get, they just get bigger and more expensive. (laughs) Honestly, they do. But these ladies in this room, they are not toys, okay? They they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity that the Father has given them, okay? Think about this. When God created Adam, he came from the dust, right? But when he came, we created Eve, what did he do? He took her from his rib. He didn't take her from the toe bone so that he would be over her. He didn't take her from the neck bone so that she would be over him. She took him from his side so that they would be side by side, equal partners, for them to help each other get to heaven. Because that's the job. I don't know if y'all knew that or not, but the job of a husband, the job of the wife, is to get the husband to the heaven. The job of the, wife, the husband is to get the wife to heaven. We're not going to talk about whose job is harder. We're just not going to talk about it. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What's the answer? We've been talking about it all night. I don't know if y'all caught it. Has anybody caught what the answer is or what you're going to do about it? Be a witness. Be a witness. Have you ever heard the analogy or the story? Here we go with analogies again. But let's just say, let's pretend... That we have a debt we can't pay. You know, most of us are farmers in here. We can relate. So we have a debt we can't pay, right? Take a million years to pay it off. There ain't no way we're going to do it. 
And the bank calls the note, says, we want our money back. We need you to pay. Can't do it. But then this guy comes out of nowhere. No, it's not Elon Musk. This guy comes out of nowhere. He goes, I got this. Don't worry about it. It's clear. You're good. Debt's paid. What? You can't do that. I mean, I know who you are. I've, I've, I've heard your name. I've kind of read about you a little bit, but you can't do that. You can't take away all my debt. It's too late. It's done. You're clear. You're free. That's, this is unbelievable. I can't do this. This is, this is unreal. What do I owe you? I got to owe you something. I got to owe you something. Nope. Nope. Don't ever want it back. But I need you to do something for me. Ah, there's a catch. I knew there'd be a catch. You paid my debt, so there'd be a catch. No, no, no catch. No catch. But I need a favor. I need you to do something for me. You need me? You just paid off all of my debt. What do you need me for? He goes, I want to do this for everybody else. I want to do this for everybody. I need you to go tell them. I need you to bring them to me. I need you to be my witness. Who in here knows that God loves you? Do you know it? I mean, we hear it all the time. But do you truly know that Jesus loves you? Enough to die for you? Enough to go through that? And that's just a nice version of what it actually looked like. I mean, y'all have seen the passion, right? That's not even what it was even close to. I saw a picture on Facebook that just showed after he was been scourged, it just shows ribs. He went through that for you. If you were the only person on earth, he would still have done it for you because he loves you. We got the great privilege the other day. We interviewed the guy who put up the cross, the 100-foot cross in Boundary. Y'all, y'all, most of y'all have seen that, I think, right? This fucker sits 100 feet tall. We got to visit with him. And we were sitting down. His name's Jim Studer, great guy. And we were talking with him, and he remembers as he was building it, he remembers just thinking, God, why me? And then he immediately followed. He goes, God, why me? Why not me? Why not me? Be a witness. Know your faith. Ask why. Learn it. Live it. Be a witness. God bless y'all. Thank y'all for having me. I appreciate it. I'm doing it. Now we're good? Okay. Well, we are seeing in this culture today where masculinity is looked down upon big time, right? I mean, it's not cool to be a guy anymore. You're not supposed to be a manly man. Oh, that's a bunch of, can't say that word either. <clears throat> but it is. I mean, we need to step up and actually be men, these guys who are that, I don't know, this culture has got it just completely backwards and we're not supposed to be guys anymore. You know, we're supposed to be girls. That's, it's, that's not the order God created it. That's not how God intended it. We're supposed to be who we are, who he created us to be. But you're right, yeah, women need to respect men as well. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of that in the news and some of these courts that's going on, that how these women are treating their men, and these guys are lost. I mean, y'all saw the guy who slapped the other guy on stage because his wife has got him all messed up in the head. And then there's the court battle going on right now where a woman just has completely demasculinized these men. They just don't know how to be a man anymore. So, yeah, we need, this, is, this is where fathers are the, the important father figure. I mean, you need the father in your life. Did you know, I see if I remember the statistics off the top of my head, that if the wife or the mother takes the kids to church, there's like a, I'm going to mess this up, I'm sorry, like 25% chance that those kids will actually go to Mass as adults. If the dad and the mom take them, it's like 65. That's a huge gap. The father has a huge, important role. If it's important to the father, it's going to be important to the kids. I mean, think about it. I see A&M shirts. I see, how many of y'all watch football on Sunday? Why? Because dad watches it. Do you think you'll watch it when you're an adult? 
Oh, yeah. Because? Because Dad watched it. It was important to Dad, so it's going to be important to you. So think about it, fellas. If your faith is important to you, what do you think it's going to be to your kids? It's going to be important to your kids. Just as much as sports are important, they're a great distraction from our everyday life. More so is our faith, because that's eternal. Sports, they come and go. Your team wins, your team loses. But your soul is on the line here, right? Your kids' souls are on the line here. So we got to make it important. Thank you for that. Yeah, we've had the privilege of interviewing some pretty cool guys. I mean, Scott Hahn was just amazing. But I would say that the person that's really influenced me the most was Steve Ray. Steve Ray. Um, I've been listening to a lot of his talks here lately just because he's a great guy. He's a convert. He came in from the Baptist. He was a huge anti-Catholic. You know, he was actually one of these guys that talked people out of the Catholic Church. And then he read his way in after a friend of his converted and thought he was nuts. He was, you're crazy. Why? You're too smart to become a Catholic. What are you, crazy? So then he started reading on it, and he became Catholic because of it. it. Just The walls started crumbling down. So I would say it was Steve Ray. He's an amazing guy. I actually got to meet him in person, hang out with him at a conference in San Antonio uh, a year ago. Ah, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. I would say it's Steve. He's really cool. But yeah, all those other guests, I mean, John Martinoni was influential in uh, me learning apologetics because that was how I learned why we do what we do. John is a guy who, apologetics is learning how to defend your faith, okay? So by learning how to defend, by learning his techniques on how to defend my faith, I was learning why we do what we do. You know, why do we kneel? Why do we, why do, what's with the Catholic calisthenics? You know, why do we believe in purgatory? Why do we believe in Mary and the saints and all this other stuff? He focuses on teaching people how to defend it when people argue against it. And that's how he was influential. Scott Hahn and his, uh, his conversion story, Rome Sweet Home, was amazing. Um, John Ricardo, Father John Ricardo from Detroit. Oh, amazing priest. He has a little apologetics in some of the stuff he talks, but it's more for him and what he talks about. It's a relationship. It's the relationship between us and God and Jesus. And he focuses on that relationship. I, I really was influenced a lot by him as well. And we had him on the show. He's amazing. Uh, so it was really cool. Funny story about Martin O'Neill, though. At the end of this, <laughs> this was last year when we interviewed him. And it was right after A&M beat Alabama. Yeah, there you go. So John is in Alabama. He lives in Alabama. He's an Alabama fan, and I knew that. So as soon as the interview was over, I kind of may have, on purpose, said, oh, yeah, by the way, John, I just wanted to wish my condolences. Right before that, he said, hey, if any time y'all are missing a guest, just give me a call. I'll be on again. I said, okay, cool. And then the show was over, and then I said, yeah, I just wanted to issue my condolences to you for the Alabama loss to A&M you know, the other weekend. And he goes, you know what I said about being on your show again? You can forget it. <laughs> of course, he was just joking. But that was great. That was pretty funny. But those were some just amazing guests. I never in my wildest dreams, I even told the guys when we first started Rome Boys that if we got Scott Hahn on, we've made it. We've hit the big time. And we did it within a year. I, I, Tony was like, who's next? The Pope? <laughs> crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> he sent him a letter. We'll see. <laughs> I doubt it. But he's bold. So that was great. No, Tony was a cradle. He grew up uh, uh, as a cradle Catholic. He went to uh, a college seminary, or he went to the seminary for a while, for three, two or three years, and decided that he wanted to get married. Uh, Chris is a convert, and that man has an amazing conversion story. We have it on the show. We have all our conversion stories on the show if you want to watch them. But his is, his is really unbelievable. There's... Uh, you kind of wonder why he's still alive or how he is where he is today and not 
Uh, he grew in a household of drugs and abuse, and it's amazing that he's even capable to be where he's at. It's an amazing story. Maybe he should be on a journey home someday. <laughs> so, yeah. But his is a really good story. All right. Right. Uh, That's a great question. Thank you. First book, as soon as you said that, popped into my mind is Trent Horn's Why Why We're Catholic. Why We're Catholic. It's an amazing book. It breaks down short, easy paragraphs to read. I was able to read it very quickly, which is is kind of an accomplishment for me because I don't read very fast. And I loved it. It was, like I said, he takes each subject because he brings it from starting out as really kind of not even a Christian and pondering what spirituality is, and he kind of worked his way through all of the religions and said, this is where, and it stopped here. And uh, he kind of breaks down each individual, say, argument. He talks about purgatory, he talks about salvation, and he breaks down all of these things, the Eucharist and confession and all these things, in short, easy paragraphs. I love it. It's great. So that would be the first one I would recommend. That would probably be the number one I would recommend. <laughs> this is why I be Catholic. Or why we're Catholic, excuse me. Um, yeah, that's really the only one I could think of at the moment. I've got a stack of books on my nightstand that I just can't seem to get through. Right now I'm working on Steve Ray's uh, Crossing the Tiber, which is really good. Um, there's also Martin Oney's Blue Collar Apologetics that I'm working on. Really one that I would also recommend, I guess, is, uh, have you all heard of Chris Stefanik? We had him on the show. We actually, me and Chris went to, he was at the Austin Men's Conference this last fall. And me and Chris ran up there and visited with him. Amazing guy. He's an amazing speaker. He speaks a lot to the youth. And he has a book called Living Joy. And it's just nine simple steps on how you can bring more joy into your life. I would recommend that one too. Thank you. That was a great question. Stepping on the poster. Well, thank y'all, guys. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I hope, hope y'all got something out of it instead of just listening to me jabber on for however long we've been here. <laughs> but I really do appreciate it. Thank y'all. One more question. Sure. Uh, who is your favorite saint? Um, not any with, like, the Holy Family or the Apostles. Okay. Favorite saint. Well, I would say before, I would say Father, I would say Padre Pio. Because he has a lot of uh, miracles attested to him. But here lately, the more I've been studying about these early church fathers, I'm really getting acquainted with St. Ignatius of Antioch a lot. And I like him a lot. There's also St. Arnold. He's the patron saint of brewers. So. St. <laughs> Sebastian, he's the patron saint of athletes, if y'all didn't know that. He's got a pretty cool story running to deliver a message and gets filled with arrows to where he looks like a porcupine and survives. Yeah, kind of crazy. He's a good one. But yeah, I'm probably, right now I'm, I'm leaning, learning a lot more about St. Ignatius. So, yeah. But Padre Pio is really cool too because, I mean, he's one of our more recent saints. I mean, where you can actually go on YouTube and see him saying Mass and he has the stigmatas. You know, he wore gloves all the time and they were always bloody. You don't know what stigmata is, right? Yeah, where he has the wounds of Jesus. He has them in his hands and his feet. And then after he died, they were gone. And no scars. And they actually investigated. They had medical people come and check it out. And they just kept bleeding. And they never got infected. And there was actually a sweet aroma. You could smell something really sweet instead of, you know what blood smells like. It don't smell sweet. That There was a sweet smell that came off of his wounds. And he had them... His, uh, for 50 years, I think. He's constantly bleeding. So, yeah, he's cool. He's got a lot of other miracles attested to him, too. That He had the, he had the uh, ability to be able to read your soul. Like, if you would go to confession and you'd say your sins, he'd be like, no, you're not done. He's like, what about this one? 
And he would say it in detail. He would tell you what you did. He's like, no, you need to confess this when you did the other day at so-and-so, and you, know, you said this. Cool. I would not like going to confession to him. That would be bad. But he did. He did bilocate. He had the miracles of bilocation to where one story was uh, he bilocated to a colder region where it was like snow and ice to where he's standing in his room and he's actually shivering. His body's in his room and it's warm in his room, but he's shivering. And then the other brothers in the monastery were like throwing blankets on him because he had bilocated to a place where it was snowing. And so his body was actually shivering. And cold. And I think, I want to say the story, Harley, do you remember, JC, that, the, that he had frost on his beard? I want to say that he had like frost building on his beard too. I might be wrong about that one. I'd have to look that one up. It's something, for some reason I remember that. But that's another cool one. Yeah, he's an awesome dude. All right. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate it.